Greetings, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Stuff We Love podcast. For this episode, Scott and I will be discussing the early years of the Beatles. As always, we will conclude with our popular Stuff We Love segment. Let's meet the hosts. I'm Dan. And I'm Scott. And you're listening to the Stuff We Love podcast. Welcome to Stuff We Love podcast. First off, I'd like to wish all of our listeners a happy new year. Uh, Dan, happy new year. Hope you had a good holiday season, New Year's Eve. Everything good with you? Everything's good with me. A happy new year to you too, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. You do anything fun over the holidays? Uh, well, basic, you know, family stuff for, for Christmas Eve and Christmas down at my sister's for that, which mm-hmm. was nice. And um, for the uh, New Year's, we actually went into Philadelphia oh. and, uh, and saw uh, John Oliver um, at the Met in Philadelphia, which was, which was a lot of fun. They had a nice turnout for that? Very nice turnout for that. Good. And uh, yeah, he was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, he's very funny. Yeah, the, I mean, the only downside to it was um, on New Year's Day in Philadelphia, they have what they call the uh, the Mummers Parade. Oh, right, um, that's right. And our hotel was right in a, in, 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 in Center City, uh, right in Rittenhouse Square. Mm-hmm. And I guess some people decided to uh, get there a little bit early. Parade starts at 9. They were probably there at 7.30. So I got woken up at 7.30 in the morning to uh, a group of people singing Fly Eagles Fly from the street. Yes, and, uh, that was a kind of infuriating way to start the new year. That that was a little upsetting. I bet those people are very happy as we speak because we are recording this just after the Eagles eliminated the Brown, the Bears, excuse me, in the wild card playoff game. So those people singing "Fly Eagles Fly" are probably singing it as we speak. Yeah, they're probably destroying some property in Philadelphia right now. <laughs> we're, if you're in Philadelphia, please get out right now. <laughs> <laughs> So everyone, you may remember Dan and I had a show a couple of weeks ago in which we discussed the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' White Album and the special release that came out in 2018 to commemorate that. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on that episode, so we thank you for listening. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, we're now going to be having a series of podcast episodes about the Beatles. And it's very tough to do that in just a couple of episodes. There are podcasts that spend their entire focus being devoted to the Beatles and the discussions of the group. But what we're going to do here is over the next three to four episodes, try to give our best overview of the band, share our thoughts about the music, talk about the songs we like, talk about the songs maybe we don't like, although I don't think there's many of those, uh, talk about the impact of the group and so forth. And what we've decided to do is break each episode down into specific time periods for the Beatles. So tonight's episode is going to focus on their very early years through 1964. And the next episode will be about the middle of the group. Then we'll do a later Beatles episode and perhaps a solo episode as well. That's the really, I guess, Dan, the easiest way to do it because when you're dealing with the Beatles, they may not have been together for that long in the realm of history, but their history is so intricate and complex. I don't know. It's very tough to decide how to break it down. You could do an episode per song if you really wanted to. Yeah, you probably could. I mean, you could you could do an, uh, an episode per album, folk, you know, just right. focusing on, on each album, um, not to mention the singles. I mean, I think we'll, we'll probably end up talking a little bit about tonight uh, between 1963 and 64, just the the output of material that they had in those that two year period mm-hmm. um, is astounding. Um, and I don't I don't think you find many, many artists or groups doing that today, uh, putting out that much material in such a short period of time. And, you know, Dan, that's an excellent point and a, and a great point to make as we begin our discussion, because as music listeners, we, we listen to a lot of music that's older, but we listen to a lot of music that's current as well. And you've just identified 
what always stands out to me as one of the major differences between a group like the Beatles versus almost all of the popular artists today, which is just how much music the Beatles released in a short amount of time. You have artists today who I really like and enjoy their music, but it will take them a year, year and a half, two years to make an album. And very often they won't be the only songwriter on the album. There will be 15 songwriters on a song. Tonight, we're going to be talking about, as I mentioned earlier, through 1964, they released four studio albums in that time. I'm talking about British releases. That's what we're going to be doing here, by the way, British releases. And multiple singles. That type of musical output is unheard of today. Unheard of. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. You, you, you don't see um, that amount, that production. Maybe an album a year, mm -hmm. um, a couple of singles a year. Like you said, you have groups that will go two to three years without releasing anything. Mm -hmm. um, so it's much different today. And, um, and the Beatles through the 60s kind of set that standard for bands releasing that amount of product in such a short period of time. I mean, you look at the end of the decade and um, a group like Creedence Clearwater Revival released three albums in 1969. Mm -hmm. So uh, to be able to do that, you don't see you don't see much of that anymore. No, and um, and a lot of it is rooted in what they did in 63, 64, and even 65. I mean, right. if you look at the span of the span of their career. There's only one year where they released one album. Um, that's 66. Revolver was the only album released in 66, mm -hmm. but there was still a good number of singles that were released in that year. Um, so they were always very productive in that seven years that they were recording. So Dan and I were talking earlier tonight about how we should cover the very early years of the group when they were young, starting out through to when they made it big. And you could probably have 20 podcast episodes alone about that topic, but we'll give a, what we will call a broad overview of that period in the history of the group. And uh, Dan, if it's all right with you, I guess I'll start talking a little bit about the early history of the band. No problem. So as I'm sure many of you already know, the Beatles comprised of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. There were other people that were in the group at different times, but that's the core four. Uh, came from Liverpool, England. That's where they grew up as children. Uh, Liverpool is nowadays about, I guess, two and a half hours from London. I was there a few years ago. I took a train from London. That's how long it took me. And was a port city located on the water. Uh, and growing up in Liverpool really shaped who the Beatles became all throughout their lives. It shaped who they were as children, who they became as adults. And through to today, the Beatles themselves, the individual members, are closely identified with Liverpool to the point that tons of people from all over the world every year go to Liverpool on vacation just to see Beatles-related attractions. There's not many musical artists like that that have physical locations just devoted to them. Graceland comes to mind as one, uh, but there's not many others uh, that I could think of. And there's, by the uh, jumping ahead very, <laughs> tremendously, all around the world, there are geographic locations devoted to the Beatles that people visit. But Liverpool uh, shaped who they were. Uh, Ringo is the oldest member of the group, and then it goes John Paul and George, oldest to youngest. Uh, and when they grew up in Liverpool, the uh, members of the Beatles, like many young people of that time period, grew up listening to a lot of music from the United States, classic 1950s rock and roll and 1950s R&B. They loved artists like Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison, Little Richard, 
Smokey Robinson and others. Uh, Dan, let me ask you a question. I was actually thinking about this before we started recording. I wanted to ask you, you and I have never talked about this. Are you a <laughs> 1950s Elvis Presley fan? We never talked about that. I, I am a 1950s Elvis Presley fan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love the stuff that, that Elvis put out in the, uh, in the 50s. Um, before, you know, before he was drafted and then came back and started making movies. Uh, and, and you got kind of like a, uh, a watered down Elvis for most of the sixties until, until the comeback special the comeback special, right. Which was, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. But yeah, I love the, the stuff Elvis put out in the, in the fifties. Great, great, uh, you know, rock and roll rockabilly, uh, stuff. Yeah. Well, Elvis was, as you know, a big influence on the Beatles and he was a big influence on all the young rock and rollers of the period. Uh, and the Beatles, uh, they actually met through different ways. Uh, the famous story is that, John Lennon was playing with his skiffle group known as the Quarrymen at a church party on, I believe the date was July 6, 1957 in Liverpool. And a mutual friend of John and Paul's named Ivan Vaughn brought Paul to that party and introduced him to John. And after John's performance with his group, they went inside the church and were hanging out in what I guess would be called a gymnasium nowadays. And Paul played for John 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran, the classic rock song. And John was very impressed that Paul knew all the words to the song because John, at this point in his career, was having trouble with words and would sort of invent them on the spot. Uh, And John recognized Paul's talent and put out a word that he wanted Paul to join the group, and Paul eventually did join the group. Uh, Paul brought George into the group shortly thereafter. Uh, George was very young at the time, but impressed John and Paul by playing the Bill Justice song, Raunchy which is an instrumental from the 50s, playing it perfectly on guitar. Uh, And then after going through a series of drummers, the most famous of which was Pete Best, who was actually in the group for a period of time, Ringo eventually came into the picture. And one of the bonds that John had with Paul as young people was that they both lost their mothers at a very young age. Uh, John's mother, Julia, who actually did not raise him. He was raised by his aunt, Mimi. Uh, John's mother, Julia, who he did develop a relationship with and became quite close to. That's depicted in the film Nowhere Man a couple of years ago. Uh, Julia was tragically hit by a car and killed when John was a teenager. And Paul lost his mother, Mary, to breast cancer. So uh, from everything I've read about the group and all my studies of the group, that loss of their mothers bonded them as young people. And Dan, I'll turn it over to you now to... Talk to us about what your impressions are of the band at a young age. We've heard some of the stuff they recorded. It's come out in compilation releases. Uh, It's nothing like what they would eventually record. But when you listen to the early Beatles and you see pictures of them, what comes to mind? Um, I mean, I think when you when you see especially when you see pictures of of uh, of the early Beatles, um, it's it's kind of uh, such a, a, a dichotomy between how they were before they were signed and and what we all could that early Beatles mop top in the in, in the Beatles suits um, you know that that we've come to know as as the Beatle look when they made it um, you know back in, in in the early in the early days they were you know had the teddy boy look with the the, the greaser slick back hair uh, leather jackets um, you know they looked like they were uh, kids from like the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, it's amazing when you listen to some of that stuff, as rough as it is, from very early on, the talent is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking 
back to uh, listening to the Anthology One stuff, and one of the first um, tracks on there from going back is a, a recording of, of them covering Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day. And um, listening to that track uh, and hearing John's voice, I mean, it's, it, you listen to that and it's, it's John Lennon. Mm-hmm. I mean, his voice at, the, at that point, at that age was strong and still kind of like cut through the mix and brought about that, you know, brought that passion um, and, and emotion to, to the song. And the way their voice, their harmonies blended together, um, they had. You see the the the, the germination of that sound mm-hmm. uh, that they that they would develop, and even some of the early songwriting stuff. I mean, while not great, because uh, when you start writing songs, your songs are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but even even their their early songs, um, they're trying to find themselves and they're writing and and um, not stellar stuff but you could see that there was talent there and they were just students of music. I mean, all of the stuff that they covered and, and when they got to Hamburg, you know, I think I said to you earlier when they got to Hamburg is when they really became the Beatles. And I Mm -hmm. think for the varied crowds that they played for playing these marathon sets, they talked about sets that, that went, uh, went on for uh, all night, all nighter sets. And that's how they got into uh, maybe uh, getting into some of the pharmaceutical um, enhancements that they would use to like get through those marathon sets, but having to be exposed to not only the stuff that they they liked as kids, uh, American rock and roll and Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, uh, the Motown stuff, but um, also playing more standard stuff and 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 show tunes and and um, and jazz, more jazzy stuff. That kind of all made them who they were and influenced their songwriting. Mm-hmm. And we even see that on the early albums with some of the choices they make as far as covers go. You, you know, you get, uh, you know, classic rock and roll stuff, you get your Motown stuff, and then you have stuff like A Taste of Honey and Till There Was You, and these came from musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's uh, an array of experience, musical and personal experiences that um, allowed them to be the artists that they were when they finally, when they finally made it. Yeah, Dan, I agree. And, and it's um, Hamburg is truly where they developed into the band that they ultimately became. In their early days, they would play club dates around Liverpool. They often played at the Cavern Club, which is a very famous location there, famous due to the fact that the Beatles played there so many times. Uh, but it was on multiple trips to Hamburg where they would play late night at these clubs uh, for a variety of crowds, uh, rough, rough crowds, artistic students, some of whom became lifelong friends of the Beatles, that they came into their own. And when you listen to some of the very early Hamburg recordings of the Beatles, they, they play with such a raw intensity that it's like they went from little league players to major league players. That's the development that the group experienced in just a very short time. And when they returned from... Liverpool on from one of these Hamburg trips the story goes that a uh, young person in Liverpool went to a record shop which was owned and managed by a man named Brian Epstein Uh, when the Beatles were in Hamburg they had recorded the backing track to a singer named Tony Sheridan singing a version of the song My Bonnie and this young person supposedly went to the record store asked for that single Brian Epstein's interest was uh, was peaked and he went to the Cavern Club to see the Beatles perform, and he felt he could 
manage them. And that's a whole story unto itself. But he ultimately became the manager of the group and got them on their way. Uh, trying to secure them record deals after uh, and and really worked hard to accomplish that which wasn't easy uh, they actually were famously rejected by Decca Records where the person that rejected them told Brian Epstein that guitar groups are on the way out that was uh, considered one of the worst moves from a business perspective in history not just musical history uh, but I agree completely Hamburg is where the Beatles came into their own if there was no Hamburg there may not be a Beatles because they may never have progressed and become as good as they were. And even though Ringo, for the most part, was not their drummer in Hamburg, he had not joined the group. He had significant drumming experience in a group known as Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. So he was a professional drummer, a very successful drummer. So when he came into the group, there really wasn't much of an adjustment period. He had actually sat in with them at various gigs, and they felt that the fit was very natural. Uh, so... Dan, anything else? I know we're giving an extremely broad overview of the early years, which we could spend hours talking about. But is there anything else that you feel is essential to cover uh, for our listeners on the uh, early years? I mean, I think, again, you could do a whole episode on just on just the early years. But um, I think uh, I think we covered uh, covered a good deal. I mean, of, of what sets us up for for talking about, you know, when they started actually their, their recording career. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Hamburg developed them as songwriters. Um, Hamburg brought Ringo into the, uh, into the fold. Um, cause they met Ringo there when he was coming through with Rory storm. Like you said, he sat in with them on a number of occasions and they come back to Liverpool, um, a more polished group. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that's where they really start getting noticed. I mean, even going back to the cavern and, and, uh, and playing there, um, they start to develop a, 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 a mythology around them right. around themselves and and that's what opens the door for them to to sign um their record deal and start recording and on that note let's turn to uh, what really these podcast episodes are all about which is the official recordings released by the beatles uh, we're going to be covering the albums from the british album perspective before their first official album was released the beatles did release a couple of singles uh, their first one was Love Me Do, backed with PSI Love You. And then it was uh, the Please Please Me single, which was their first single to go to number one. Before we talk about the Please Please Me album, I just wanted to say, while I love Love Me Do and I really enjoy PSI Love You, it is astounding to hear a track like Please Please Me and realize that this was an original song written by Lennon and McCartney. And just to hear how unbelievably good it is that... Even early on, as you mentioned earlier tonight, Dan, on our episode, the talent, the songwriting talent inherent in the group was there. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts on those first couple of singles? Well, one of the things that I think always strikes me about those, those early singles is the um, musical development mm-hmm. of, of the songwriting. Because you hear things that really you, you didn't necessarily hear up to that point in, um, in a rock song. So most rock rock songs at the time were, were, you know, basically inspired by the blues and based around standard blues changes, you know, for, for people that are um, musically inclined, you know, blues changes, the one, four, five blues chord changes basically was what a rock song was based around. For uh, you listen to, especially um, From Me To You and, um, and, and Please Please Me, uh, you know, the Beatles are, are changing it up and throwing in... Um, you know, these chords that you maybe didn't always find in, in rock songs of that period. Um, these, these sharp minor chords, um, which creates, um, 
you know, it, it, it's most evident in, in from me to you when it gets to that, you know, I got arms, or, uh, yeah, I got arms that long to hold you. The chord that goes, goes from major chords to this F sharp minor chord, and it changes the whole vibe of the song going into that middle eight. In Please Please Me, um, the second come on, again, it, it goes from a, a major chord to, um, I believe it's a, it's, it's a A sharp minor chord, and there's a C sharp minor chord in there. So it's these little things that kind of change, you know, the song a little bit. And uh, it's very, I guess, musically sophisticated for a band that were in their late teens, uh, early 20s, mm-hmm. had never recorded before. You know, we're writing original material and, and this is what they were kind of putting out. And it, it's this more polished, um, sophisticated um, songwriting. That's That's something very striking right off the bat, your first couple of singles, you don't normally find that level of songwriting skill there. And Dan, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you tonight, which you just covered, I'm very glad you did, is the musical complexity. Since you are a musician who has experience playing the Beatles music, I wanted to get your opinion on just how difficult it is to play their songs and what type of musical songwriting ability they did display at an early age. And you've just answered that thoroughly, which is great. Uh, And along those lines, not only did they display such great musical talent, but they also had tremendous confidence for artists so young who could easily be intimidated by the idea of stepping into a studio and recording because the story famously goes that their record producer, George Marnin, after releasing Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You and didn't go to the top of the charts, he wanted them to release as their next single the song How Do You Do It, which he thought would go to number one. And the Beatles did record it. It's available to hear on Beatles Anthology 1. I like it. To me, it's a good, fun track. But they did not want to release that for their next single, and they insisted on releasing Please Please Me, uh, which George Martin also did believe once he heard it in the finished version would go to number one, and it sure did. Uh, Important to note, How Do You Do It did go to number one later on for Jerry and the Pacemakers. Uh, But not many groups would have the confidence to tell their producer, nope, not recording that, we're going to do what we want. Uh, And they did, which really is amazing. And it was... All of this initial experience with the single releases that led into the Beatles' first album, titled Please Please Me. Now, this album was actually recorded in one day, uh, which is the only time that ever happened in the Beatles' career. I was listening to some interview recently with the person. I really, I was trying to remember where it was, but they were, I, I don't, I don't remember who said this, but this person that I was listening to speak said that one of the differences between the Beatles and artists today is that the Beatles recorded their albums in a day where artists today take a long time. It's a ridiculous statement, by the way, because Please Please Me was the only time that the Beatles recorded an entire album in one day. If anything, they spent a good amount of time in their later years working on albums like Sgt. Pepper and Revolver and so forth. Uh, But Please Please Me, the reason they were able to do it in a day was because the tracks on the album were largely comprised of the songs that they were playing at their performance gigs. So they didn't need to rehearse a lot. They were able to just go track by track by track. And Dan, one, the first point I wanted to make about this album before we get into our thoughts on it is that I think it's fair to say most Beatles fans would identify this album uh, as one of their least best albums. And that's not a knock on the album because I do really, really enjoy it. When we talk about the Beatles, their least best is still great. But it doesn't stand up, I think, for most people like some of their other releases would. And yet, for an album that's at the bottom of the list, you still have 
rock and roll classics like I saw her standing there, which is the opening track. Please please me. Do you want to know a secret? Twist and shout. And that just shows you the talent of the Beatles. Th- that's one thing that just stands out for me. Oh yeah, I think if you if you look at it for what it is, it's it's an an incredible debut album. Yes. I think it says a lot. The fact that that people would put it at at, at the bottom of a list or you know say maybe it's not as great um, an album um, is because of what came after. Right. Um, and I mean, just because of what came later that year, if, if you hold Please Please Me Up against With the Beatles, With the Beatles is by far a superior album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only recorded in the span of a few months apart from one another. Um, but as far as the debut goes, I mean, that's an incredible debut for any band. There's some solid classics on there. Mm-hmm. And wh- I think one another thing that I, I is great about the um, the album is you, you see what the Beatles were able to do. Um, not only with just with with what they wrote their their original songs, which uh, were were great, but what they did with cover songs, where they they took a song that they were covering and they really made it their own, right? Uh, to the point where a lot of people might not realize that it's a cover song. I mean, right. I'm sure uh, we we are familiar with it and we know that Twist and Shout is a cover of an Isley Isley Brothers song, but many people might not know that there was. And I, that was an Isley Brothers song, or that there even is an Isley was an I were an Isley Brothers, you know, right. like right. Um, a song like Anna, which is one of my favorite tracks on the album. Good call, um, me too. Most people might not know that that was a cover, right? Because of the way they perform it, they perform it like it is their own. Right. They take the song and they make it their own. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan, I once had the chance to meet Chuck Berry. I don't know if I ever shared this with you. And even though the Beatles did not cover Chuck Berry on Please Please Me, they covered him on their next album and a couple albums down the road. And I said to him, out of the two covers that the Beatles did of your music, which one is your favorite? And I had trouble hearing him, but I'm pretty sure what he said to me was, I don't know, man, but when they wrote yesterday, they wrote that for me. (laughs) Which I thought was a great, great response. Um, But their covers were phenomenal. And... uh, the, one of the great things about the Beatles, for me personally, and I think for many of their listeners, is that they introduce their audience to artists and songs that they may not otherwise have turned to and listened. I know, for speaking for myself, Anna being a perfect example. I guess I was done originally by Arthur Alexander. Am I right about that? I've listened to a little bit of his work on Apple Music. I've learned about him. Uh, I've gone back and listened to the original versions of the songs the Beatles recorded. And it's very tough to take a song, not be the first person to record it and improve on it. And yet I think that's what the Beatles often did. Uh, certainly with regard to Twist and Shout, nothing against the Isley Brothers version. They are, of course, a legendary, probably, they may even be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a group. But the Twist and Shout version by the Beatles is one of the great rock and roll tracks of all time. That's still, every time you hear it, no matter how many times you hear it, it just sounds fresh and so exciting. Dan, something else I was thinking about with regard to the Please Please Me album, I was reading the book that came along with the White Album box set that we were talking mm-hmm. about recently, and I was reading about the song Honey Pie, and one of the points that the author made is that in that song, which was inspired by 1920s-style jazz sounds, there's an introduction to the song that is not repeated later on in the song, and there were a couple of instances in the Beatles' history where this was done. Just like you'd have performer, uh, composers like Gershwin and Rodgers and Hammerstein that would write in a similar may- way. There may be an introduction to the song mm-hmm. featuring music and lyrics, and then those m- melodies and lyrics would not be returned to later on in the track. And on the Please Please Me album, one of the songs in which that is done is Do You Want to Know a Secret, 
where it begins. You'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I care. And then it goes, listen, do you want to know a secret? And I just think that's great because if someone, I, I know you're the same way, Dan. We're fans of the great American songbook and the, mm-hmm. and the songs that came from that period. It's one of my favorite things about the Beatles is that they had an appreciation for that genre of music and were influenced by it and uh, wrote songs in that style of music, which is great. Another thing I love about Do You Want to Know a Secret, we cover a lot of Disney stuff here on the podcast, and at least from what I've read, John Lennon was inspired by the movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, where there's a scene where Snow White is looking at a wishing well and says, want to know a secret? Promise not to tell. And that li- those words were taken and used as an influence in the lyrics for Do You Want to Know a Secret? So I love that Beatles-Disney connection there, which is really awesome. Uh, and Dan, so I want to ask you, t- take me through some of your highlights and low points on the Please Please Me album. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. Oh, okay. Um, high points and low points. Uh, for me, I mean, without a doubt, Twist and Shout um, is a high point. Um, I saw her standing there. I mean, what a better way to, to, to kick off an album, especially a debut album, uh, from Paul's Count-In to just the whole track is incredible. Um, I'm, I, I, love, uh, I love Anna. Yeah, that is probably one of my favorite tracks on the album. Um, Why do you love it so much? You know, I think it's it's again, I have this um, connection to John's voice. Mm. And and again, the emotion that he's able to um, convey Mm -hmm. through the course of that song. Uh, You really get the. I mean, the essence of what the song is about. And and you can hear um, in it like it's almost as if he's actually having that conversation right? Um, and, and, and the emotion and the, and, and the pain that he's going through expressing this feeling of, you know, telling this, this, this uh, woman that he loves that um, I love you more than anyone else, but if you want to go with him, go with him. Right. And, and, you know, some of, sometimes in, in, in rock songs and pop songs, I mean, you have a lyric like that and it could be delivered and it could sound very trite um, and, and, but not the way they perform that. I mean, you get from John's vocal the emotion behind the totally. sentiments in that song. Completely agree. With um, and so that's one of the reasons why that's uh, you know I, I really love that song. Um, I like I, I like boys. You know, I just like ring. That's our the you know the first Ringo vocal track, and I, I feel like no matter what people say about Ringo's voice, whenever he performed a track, he put. And to this day, whenever he performs, he puts a hundred and ten percent behind whatever he does. Like Ringo <laughs> goes for it, right? And uh, and it's a fun, fun track. Um, it's a fun song, and you know, uh, just uh, you gotta love Ringo. Yeah. Um, uh, P.S. I Love You is a great track. Of course, please please me. Um, another um, another song I'm a big fan of is There's a Place. Mm-hmm. Um, really like that one. And do you want to know a secret? Right. And another cover on the track that I really like is. Uh, cover on the album that i really like is is their cover of um uh baby it's you oh yes that's right i actually have forgotten about that as we were talking yeah yes yeah yeah um i do like uh that take on the song mm-hmm. um ones that i um, that don't really resonate with me all too much um chains misery uh a taste of honey those are probably the ones and i think See, I even forget if it's on the album. Is Ask Me Why on Please It Please is on the album. Yeah, it's track okay. six. Yeah. Ask Me Why. I can't even, I don't always remember it's even on the album. Ask Me Why is not one that, that ranks very high. So to me, those are the filler tracks. Well, Dan, you know, this is great, by the way. We've reached now 
the first moment in this series of Beatles episodes where you and I are going to agree but also disagree on some Beatles points. And that's great because I think mm-hmm. one thing – I'll point out these uh, disagreements, but I, I use that term very lightly because we all – this music still means a great deal to us. So when we say we're not as crazy about it, we'll still – listen to it any day of the weekend enjoy mm-hmm. it so but uh, first off I, I completely agree with you i saw her standing there for an opening track is brilliant just the words the rhythm the oh it's just it's a perfect track i love anna uh, your analysis of john's vocal was perfect there's nothing i can really add to it except that he sings with such emotion you just get caught up in his vocal performance it's beautiful it really is uh, i love do you want to know a secret twist and shout obviously is great now one area where we disagree uh, Boys is actually probably my least favorite song on the album. Now, again, that's not to say I don't like it, because there are things I do like about the track, particularly the George guitar solo, I think is really great on the track. I do like Ringo's vocal. I'm just not that crazy about the song itself. I also do like Ask Me Why more than you. I love the harmony <laughs> on the track. Uh, I, even with the first, I remember years ago, the first time I heard the Please Please Me album, I kind of was drawn to that track. I'm a sucker for good love songs and good mm-hmm. harmony. Maybe that's what drew me in. Uh, I also like George's vocal on Chains. I think it's got this youthful innocence to it, which I really like. Uh, but there's, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all good. I mean, these are these are gems. This is a, an amazing first album by a group uh, and of course it's uh it's got the famous album cover as well where it's uh, a picture of them i guess taken f- the, the camera was beneath the group as they were leaning over a railing and you see them uh in their suits with their early beatles style haircuts and it's a really cool photo uh something else that please please me did which kind of set the stage for future beatles album releases was uh, have vocal performances by all of the members of the group, which at the time was also largely unheard of. While most of the vocals were done by John and Paul, as we mentioned, George is on there singing, Ringo is on there singing. Other groups didn't necessarily do that. They may have had one lead singer. Even now, it's very rare you'll find a band where multiple members will sing as many songs individually as the individual members of the Beatles did. Uh, by the way, Dan, are you are you having a beer while we record the episode? I am. What I are am, you drinking? Yeah. Side note. This is a uh, side note. Oh, this is a side note. I'm drinking um, Prestige. It's a um, uh, Dutch beer. Really? Yeah. It's an it's an interesting story. I um, had this in Paris on um, on my honeymoon, and it, it was really really good. And I, I forgot the name of it, and I couldn't. I've been trying to find it for years, and uh, a couple of weeks ago I found it. So, where'd you find it? A local store. In a local store, just randomly. Dan, uh, shortly before, we'll get back to the Beatles in a second here, but uh, now you, you've just offered a great Stuff We Love recommendation in the middle of the show, which is an <laughs> import-type beer. I, I recorded a very brief solo episode as we got to the end of the year, just giving our audience a preview of what's to come in 2019 on the podcast. And for my Stuff We Love that night, I mentioned Bud Light Lime. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and by the way, that's a great beer, by the way. But like, my beer. friend like Greg that. introduced me to it. But this is a little bit more sophisticated, by the way. Mm. Yeah, but Bud Light Lime is still still a great beer. I love <laughs> it. I, I'm not a huge Bud Light fan, but the lime really, I, I thought it added a great flavor. Yeah. Uh, so what were we talking about? Please, please me. Please, please me, yes. So, uh, Dan, uh, in summary, anything you want to add about the album before we turn to their next release? Well, again, I think it's a, it's a great... Um, great debut album it's probably one of like if you were to rank um all-time best debut albums it's got to it's probably got to rank up in the top 10 i would say i mean um i think if you take it for what it is maybe not their best work uh, overall when you look at their entire catalog and the entire output of uh, material but um 
definitely a great debut and, and it sets it set the stage nicely for with the Beatles, which um, to me takes what was done on Please Please Me and then just jumps it up like six levels. And, and that's a great segue, Dan, into their next release with the Beatles. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your I mean, you've, you've hinted at it already, your thoughts on the album, why you think it's an evolution in the group songwriting and uh, what your impressions were when you first heard it. Well, I think one of the things um, that takes it up a level is we see more original songs. Mm -hmm. So I, I think if we look at it, we see more, you know, John Paul originals. We see George's first crack at songwriting on with the Beatles mm -hmm. uh, with Don't Bother Me. And um, and even I feel like they they take it a step further with the covers as to really making it their own. I mean, I, I, I think um, people could argue with uh with me there's been several versions of rollover beethoven uh from chuck berry's original to numerous other covers you know you have like electric light orchestra covering it and uh but i don't think it gets much better than than george's performance of it on with the beatles mm -hmm. um i mean i think you look at till there was you yeah uh, you know which is just a classic and taking a a uh a Meredith Wilson show tune from the music man and turning it into a, a great acoustic rock track mm -hmm. with um, an awesome uh, nylon string guitar solo by George. It's, it's just, you know, incredible how they took these songs and they made it their own to the point where, again, uh, if you play that for an average person, they probably would not realize that that's not a Beatles song. Right. Right. Uh, you know, Dan, it's a great point. Uh, I have a very distinct memory when I was a kid of my grandfather taking me to see a performance of The Music Man. And even at a young age, I really don't remember how old I was. I like the song Till There Was You because it's such a beautiful song with a wonderful melody and so forth. And yet it's the Beatles version of that song, whether it's the version that's on with the Beatles, the version that was released on the live at the BBC recordings. I think there was one on each of the official Beatles releases that came out. Paul's vocal on that is great. George's guitar solo is beautiful and it still holds up and they make it their own and they just do such a great job with it. Another thing about With the Beatles, which also stands out for me, is one of my favorite Beatles songs, which is the opening track, It Won't Be Long, uh, which is this burst of energy featuring this constant refrain of yeah, 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 which was they did in a couple of tracks, including the She Loves You single. Um and it's just got this the way, you know, it's interesting. The way I often describe the Beatles early 60s recordings is that they took elements of 1950s rock and roll and R&B and they put it into their music and it developed something a little bit better. I love 50s music. I love 50s rock. I love 50s R&B. But when I think when you get into the 60s, what the Beatles did is they just kind of stepped up the game a little bit and they took everything they learned and they just enhanced it. So when you listen to a track like It Won't Be Long, the lyrics are things that perhaps artists in the 50s would be singing about. But even the ending where they raise the vocal till I'm in love, it won't be long till I belong to you. Ooh, and then they raise that like that. There's kind of like this doo-wop ending. And it's just taking it up a notch. Their songwriting development, they took what they learned and then they enhanced it, uh, which I think is something we look for in all of our musical artists. Um, so you got, as you mentioned, Till There Was You. Also covers on there like uh, You Really Got a Hold On Me from Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. I wasn't as into that when I was younger, but each time I listen to that, you hear John's vocal. It's jaw-dropping, absolutely jaw-dropping. 
And one of my favorite Beatles songs as well, not only is it Won't Be Long, but then you get into track two, All I've Got to Do. All I've Got to Do is a great song. That's one of my favorites too. Great, I, I, great song. Why great. do you like it so much, Dan? I like the the um, kind of change from the, the 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 soft slow verses yes to the the faster uh, more intense choruses mm-hmm. um, so that that change there to me is is probably one of the the things that really pulled me into the song right. and also again John's vocal yes on it is is another incredible early John vocal. Mm-hmm. It's fun to play too. It it's is. A, it is. A, it is a fun song to play. Um, so that's that's probably one of my favorites on the album. Dan, another track I really like on "With the Beatles" is "Not a Second Time," uh, which is also another John vocal. And can you um, maybe you can answer this from a musician's perspective? In that song, part of it which I always kind of really like is the part where it goes. You know you made me cry. Da 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 da. Might cry. For you, like there's a change in the melodies. In, in other words, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is there something the Beatles did in their early tracks, these melodic shifts in the tracks that hooked the listeners in? Did they depl- did they sort of deploy any songwriting techniques going from major to minor that are known for making tracks catchy? What is it about their songwriting that made their songs so listenable and such earworms? I think one of the things is just... I think John and Paul, more so Paul than John, um, had a, a natural gift for for melody. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and we know just from Paul's career, uh, Paul has a, a incredible ability to write catchy melodies. Right. I mean, even songs that people claim that they hate, um, coming off of the holiday season, um, wonderful Christmas time. Right. How many people say they hate that song, but the melody will get lo- lodged in your head for yes. quite a few days. Uh, <laughs> but just that that ability to write these strong melodies, which I think came from um, from their vast influences. I mean, everything from Skiffle to uh, the Great American Songbook to Motown and R and B and 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 rock and rockabilly, uh, all uh, all that coming together. Um, they had all of the right influences mm-hmm. and they didn't just write uh, rock songs. All of those influences came together and they weren't afraid to take all of that and put it in one song. Right. So you had like those you know, song where the verse would be in a major key and then you'd go into the chorus or the middle eight and it would shift to a minor key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd have as they, especially as they start to develop, it's like these different chords with jazz chords working their way in and, um, even the way they, they started to harmonize, um, and things that they did as far as techniques. I mean, John was, was famous for always double tracking his vocal mm-hmm. uh, because he hated the sound of, of his own voice. Right. So he would use, uh, the, uh, automatic, automatic double tracking, the ADT, um, in the studio to double track his voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when you add it, Paul on top of that, and then George, uh, it just created this really solid uh, vocal mm-hmm. and um, and their harmonies, um, the way they work their harmonies and their voices is is very, uh, I, I I don't know, I, it's different. It's, it's very Beatles. It's it's distinct right. to them, right? You know, I think um, even in in songs where uh, Paul has the lead, when they start to ha- harmonize, you'll notice that you know John takes a lower lead harmony, right? And Paul's always um, kind of harmonizing above him, and if you add George in 
adds another harmony to it, and it's just this very, very beatly sound. Right. And um, and I think that makes a lot of the, the tracks, a lot of the songs. And Dan, uh, another point that just came to mind is that from a very early stage, the Beatles sort of resolved never to release work product to the fans that they felt was subpar. So whereas other artists may have released an album with three good singles and the rest was kind of like filler, that was never the case with the Beatles. They said to themselves, we can't give our fans something that is that we ourselves wouldn't want to listen to. And that stands out as well. And it's interesting, Dan, because as we're talking about with the Beatles, all of the tracks that you and I have mentioned are great, and we love them all. And we didn't mention the song that is arguably the most famous song on the album, which is All My Loving, which uh, is perhaps the song that most people would turn to as the greatest hit from the album. And it's a track I love. It's standard, rock and roll standard. But yet their music is so good and the album is so strong, we don't even turn to that right away as one of the first tracks that we love, which is really great. No, yeah, we talked about uh, a whole bunch of tracks and did not did not bring up All My Loving, which is the, which is the standout track on the album. Right. Um, and a great early Paul song. Right. Um, and, and, and one of the things to me that, that makes All My Loving such a great song is, um, is the, uh, the R- John's rhythm guitar part. Yes, it is. Uh, which is a bitch to play. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, still trying to get it right. Um, all these years of playing, but that just that that triplet um, guitar rhythm mm-hmm. going on throughout throughout the back, uh, I think ma- makes makes the song part of what it is. You know, it's an incredible song. It it is really great. I do love it. It never gets old. Um, Dan, we've talked a little bit about our favorite tracks for the album. Are there any that you're not crazy about? Hold me tight. Really? Oh wow! That's another disagreement you and I. Tell me why. Tell yeah. me why that you. Uh... Uh, I I just think it it pales in comparison to the other other song. It feels rushed and kind of like thrown in last minute or under rehearsed. I don't know. It just to me, it's it, it's not up to par with the other tracks on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my opinion on it. I I I do see what you mean. Uh, an example, by the way, of the Beatles taking a song that wasn't theirs. And making it a gazillion times better is Please, Mr. Postman. Oh, which was yeah. was originally done by the Marvelettes. And by the way, I like the Marvelettes version on Motown. I really like their version of Please, Mr. Postman. But you hear the Beatles version and this intensity and Ringo's drumming and the hand claps. It's jaw-dropping. It's just absolutely mesmerizing as a track. Um, so I love with the Beatles. And I'll point out before we continue that one of the great things about the Beatles is their album covers. We talked about the Please, Please Me album cover. Each of their album covers is distinct, and the With the Beatles cover features the uh, shadowed images of the four of their faces, and this, of course, is one of the most famous pictures in rock and roll history, uh, and it was duplicated on the American release of Meet the Beatles. And uh, before we get to their next studio album, it's important to point out the major development in the Beatles' career that took place in 1964 when the Beatles single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Uh, was released in the United States and for the first time in the Beatles' career went to number one in America. They had had other releases in America that did not catch on. But I want to hold your hand for reasons that if you've heard the song, you understand because it's such a catchy and fun tune. Went to number one, became a massive massive success, and it was arranged for the Beatles to come to America in early February 1964. 
make an appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, play concerts at Carnegie Hall, the Washington Coliseum, and then make their way down to Miami where they would appear on the Ed Sullivan Show again from the Deauville Hotel, which, by the way, Dan, when I was in Miami in November of last year, we were driving on the, uh, I guess it was Route 1, A1A down there, I forget which, and we passed the abandoned Deauville Hotel, which is in need of a major repair was close to the public, but yet the DeVille sign was still up, and I got goosebumps because I thought to myself, wait, that's where the Beatles played, which is really, really amazing. Uh, But they went to number one in America, and this, of course, is one of those significant moments in rock and roll history. People that were alive at the time inevitably remember where they were on the night of Sunday, February 9th, 1964, watching the Beatles appear on the Ed Sullivan Show for the first time. Uh, Dan, any thoughts on the Beatles in America? Uh, I mean... This is the uh, the the historic moment in, in in rock and roll history. I mean, this is this changes everything, right? right? Uh, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, nineteen February of nineteen sixty four. I mean, in the United States at that time, musically things were kind of in a slump, I guess you could say. Um, although you did have, we forget in in talking about that, you did have groups that were recording, like uh, you know Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons and and the Beach Boys that. You know, we're pretty solid artists putting out good material. But um, Paul often talks about how, you know, a lot of the stuff over here at that time, um, you know, after, you know, the death of Buddy Holly and, and uh, Richie Valens, the big bopper, um, Elvis going into the army um, and coming back and making movies. You know, you had a lot of this like teeny bopper stuff. He always talks about like Frankie Avalon and Fabian, you know, in a very negative light of like, this is what people were listening to. Um, and music had really kind of cooled off in a bit. You had like novelty tracks and things like that that were popular. Mm-hmm. And then in came the Beatles, 1964, February of 1964. Um, really, when the country needed it, still the country was still in mourning over the Kennedy assassination and mm-hmm. and uh, and that and um, giving giving culture uh, pop culture in the United States a shot in the arm. Yeah, opening up the uh, the, the the British invasion, having groups now like the Stones and the Who and um, and uh, and the Kings coming over, right. um, as well as a lot of you know the the, the one hit wonder British groups that you had like um, right Jerry and the Pacemakers and uh, Freddie and the Dreamers and all that stuff, um, and also inspiring a lot of American groups to now start uh, you know coming to the forefront. Right, Dan. One of my favorite books that I read over the past few years is a book called Changing Times, and it focused on the period from the JFK assassination through to the Beatles' arrival in 1964, and looked at the uh, what was going on in the world of pop culture and the, and news, uh, all the developments. What were people watching on TV? What movies were they seeing? And looked at the question of whether or not it was the uh, national sadness that people were feeling after the JFK assassination that paved the way for the Beatles to emerge in 1964. And I I think to a certain degree, it was the sadness that people were looking to get out of, but it's not necessarily, I think entirely true, Uh, but it's fascinating to me to watch the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th and think about the fact that just a couple months before the young popular president was assassinated and the, the traumatic effect it had on the country and the world and you just watch footage from that time and you think to yourself, I can't believe that happened so not long before that evening when the Beatles performed. It's one of those historical things where you just look at it. And if you're a fan of history like we are, you kind of get goosebumps watching it because you think about everything that was going on at the time. Uh, so they, they did go to number one in America and they uh, entered into a film career. They signed a deal 
uh, where they were obviously they were massively popular and there was an interest in getting the Beatles on film. So they signed a deal with United Artists and their first film that was released was A Hard Day's Night. We're not going to necessarily talk about the movies and if they're good, if they're not, although I do like A Hard Day's Night a lot, but uh, we'll talk about the music. And so the next album that was released by the Beatles was A Hard Day's Night. And the British version of the album had 13 tracks. What makes it very significant is the fact that it's the first Beatles album to have all Lennon-McCartney originals. There were no covers on this album. And if you listen to the episode where we talked about the White Album, we spoke about how we got into the Beatles. I mentioned this was, for me, the first Beatles album that I bought. And it remains my favorite to this day. Uh, I was just blown away when I first heard the album. That for me, every track, even the ones I may not necessarily be as crazy about was melodic, had sophisticated lyrics that started to, I think, for the first time, really go beyond what young songwriters in the early 1960s would write about. Although there's a place, which you mentioned a second ago, you really like from Please Me, does sort of go that way too and goes beyond the traditional songwriting. But with the Hard Day's Night album, I just love their look at the time. The classic Beatle haircut was in full effect. I love their vocal abilities at the time. And I really am a fan of every track on this album. If I had to mention a couple of standouts, I would mention If I Fell, which is a love song that appears uh, on the album, which I find to be uh, a song with real sentimental strength, uh, featuring a John lead vocal, although him and Paul harmonize on the song. Uh, I Love and I Love Her, which is another love song on the album, which features one of the great early Paul vocals. I Love Tell Me Why which is a fun rock and roll song that follows and I love her on the album. Uh, I love I'll cry instead, which is a uh, John vocal that to me also shows really sophisticated songwriting for that period in which John sings about how he has every reason to be mad. The girl that he was in love left him, uh, but he's, he's going to cry about it. Um, but he talks about not wanting people to see him cry. He doesn't like the fact that they stop and stare when they see him cry. I mean, all this stuff, this is like poetry at the time. Each, you know, I, you know, it's interesting, Dan, as we're talking, one thing that I just remembered is that I heard a quote from Charlton Heston talking about Frank Sinatra music. And he said that every Frank Sinatra song is like a four-minute movie. And I thought that was an amazing quote. And I think it applies to the Beatles, too. Every song, in a way, is like a movie. It tells a story, it's concise, it's tightly packaged, and A Hard Day's Night and a song like I'll Cry Instead is a real example of that. Uh, those are the tracks that stand out to me, but I love this album. Uh, Dan, tell me about your impressions of A Hard Day's Night uh, and, and where it ranks for you. I mean, I think looking at the early Beatles albums, um, it's probably the best of their, their early albums. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like you said, we see uh, the first album of all Lennon-McCartney um, compositions, uh, all original compositions. And we're not going to see another album of all original compositions until rubber soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the next year. Uh, so this was a big step for them at the time. It's the first time that they didn't cover anyone else's songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see a, a, a gigantic step forward in songwriting. So you have, uh, tracks on there that kind of hint at where they're going to go the, the following year, mm-hmm. where they're going to take their sound. Um, like I'll be back things we said today. Love that. I should have known better. I mean, there's just so many, so many tracks on there that are, that are incredible songs. And even again, even the songs that maybe might not strike you as that's a great song. 
or like that's my favorite, it's hard to deny that it's 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 a pretty solid song. Mm-hmm. And if you put it up against songs by other artists, would probably uh, the worst Beatles song is probably <laughs> better than the best. Uh, I don't know. The worst, I can say this totally confidently, the worst Beatles song is better than the best Kiss song. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Pretty much, you know, put that out there. And, and to me, that's a true statement. <laughs> uh, Dan, let me ask you a question about Can't Buy Me Love, because I, I do love it. It's obviously one of the great rock and roll songs of all time. It's a standard. Uh, when the Beatles released the Anthology One compilation, they released a version of Can't Buy Me Love, which sounds very different from the version that ultimately was released. It's more of a real rock and roller type song that's on the anthology one version, but on the, um, a hard day's night album, it's more, it has more of a country Western flair in the terms of the guitar solo. If you, if you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. I, I think, um, uh, George I, kind of puts more of his, his, his Chet Atkins influence. Right. Exactly. I'm curious for you, which version do you like more? Um, I actually like the, uh, the, the, the studio ver- the, the release version on um, on a hard day's night more. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, personally for me, um, I think there's there's uh, there's little things in it that I like uh, that to me make the song. The the last um, repeat of the chorus, um, Ringo goes from playing on the uh, the hi hat and snare to doing like this uh, Gene Krupa esque Tom rhythm. Um, and finishing the song, and to me, it's like little things like that right. that that, that um, make the song for me. It's like these little artistic flourishes that are in there. And I mean, one thing that you have to say about Ringo as a drummer, uh, Ringo is probably one of the most underrated drummers in rock history. I agree. Um, people disparage Ringo because he wasn't Keith Moon or John Bonham or you know one of these kind of players. But he was a songwriter's drummer. I mean, everything he played, he played to fit the song. Mm-hmm. And I think there's very few drummers where um, one of the things I think is interesting about Ringo is you could take a Beatles track, erase everything but the drums, mm-hmm. listen to Ringo's drum part, and be able to, to say exactly which song it is just by listening to what Ring- Ringo's drums. Right. He, was that, he had that much of an impact on the individual tracks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he played around the song. Uh, he played what the song needed. So he, he played the song like a, a songwriter, played the drums like a songwriter would around John's vocals or Paul's vocals and, you know, left space where you needed space. And um, I think Ringo's incredibly underrated. Uh, before we go into the next album, then, so you feel that A Hard Day's Night is the strongest of their early works. Mm-hmm. Are there yeah, any- I mean, good. No, I think it, it, it really is. You start. You, you see where they're going to go from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you look at a hard day's night, it, it was very easy, and people were talking about it then at the time. Um, how long was this Beatlemania fad going to last? When was the group going to burn out? And um, you know, when would they run out of material? For any other band that was around at the time, mm-hmm. you know, young band, um, a hard day's night would have probably been their creative peak. Right. Um, and then they would fizzled out after that, and. Um, and to me, a hard day's night. You know, you see them setting up for where they're going to go from here, um, and you see a little bit more of that in the originals on um, on Beatles for Sale. You kind of see them taking it another step up, and we're starting to head into '65. Right. So along those lines, let's turn to their next album, which will be the final album we'll cover on tonight's episode, uh, which Dan, as you identify, is Beatles for Sale. I'll give the audience a little bit of background on this album. 
Well, I mean, Beatles for Sale is now the last album that they record and release in 64. Mm-hmm. And what we're kind of seeing, and you see it by the, um, also by the, the, the photo on the album cover and the, the, the back cover, is we're seeing sort of the Beatles still progressing ahead in their songwriting and their, uh, their performing. But now I think uh, getting a little bit of the uh, weariness from the road and the constant, um, t- constant touring. Mm-hmm. So I think Beatles for Sale marks a point where um, they're starting to um, transition into the next stage of their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this point, I think they're, uh, they're starting to see some negative impact from their concerts in the road. They always talked about uh, they started to feel like they weren't developing as players because they couldn't hear um, each other. Uh, when they perform because of the screaming and, and, and the, um, the, the sheer noise from the fans, right. the whole Beatlemania thing was getting to them. Um, they were starting to get a little, you know, a little uh, fatigued from their schedule. And um, I think we see that on the recording of, on the recording of Beatles for sale. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, which we, I think we go back to seeing more covers on that album than we saw on, uh, with the Beatles. Right. Um, so we see a little bit more of uh, the, the leaning back on, on cover material rather than original. And Dan, speaking of those covers, when you while we're fans of the covers, but when you listen to the covers on Beatles for Sale, do you feel that they lack the energy that some of their earlier covers did? Like, for example, is, is there an equivalent of Rollover Beethoven on there or no, in your I, opinion? I mean, I think the closest you get as far as the covers there are um, rock and roll music. Right. Um, I think rock and roll music is probably is is the Beatles cover of it is to me better than the Chuck Berry original. Agreed. Um, Everybody's trying to be my baby. Mm-hmm. Um, is 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 pretty solid. I I think right. uh, not as good as um, Roll Over Beethoven, especially from a George performance uh, perspective. It's a good point. It's still a, a still a pretty solid song. Right. Um, and then there's covers on there that you know to me kind of missed the mark, like uh, a Beatles guilty pleasure for me is is mr moonlight but it's not a great cover agreed <laughs> you know? I, I feel the same way you do uh, but it's a guilty pleasure song right. but when you look at the originals again i think we're you know we're stepping it up a notch and mm-hmm. and we're to me beatles for sale is kind of opening the door for um a, another subgenre of rock i think we're starting to see a little bit more of a folky mm-hmm. um t- uh, tinge to some of these originals especially um i'll follow the sun I don't yes. want to. I don't want to spoil the party. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else there. Um, no reply. No reply is a great uh, song. And and I think you're seeing like the the beginnings of what would inspire bands like like the Birds. Um, yes. Which already, I mean, the Birds wouldn't have been the Birds arguably without um, without a hard day's night because uh, uh, Roger McGuinn, uh, then Jim McGuinn, talks about going to see a hard day's night with David Crosby and Gene Clark. And looking, spending the whole movie looking at George's Rickenbacker guitar and right. figuring out that it was a 12 string and then going out and buying his own Rickenbacker 12 string guitar. And that's the bird sound. Right. Um, and it wouldn't have happened without a hard day's night. But we start seeing more of that, that, that folky influence mm-hmm. in Beatles for Sale that's going to take us into um, Help and then Rubber Soul, where we see it even more. So, Dan, are you a fan of Bob Dylan? I am a fan of Bob Dylan. Uh, so so uh, this, of course, is around the time, as you know, that the Beatles had met Bob Dylan. He introduced them to marijuana. You see, so I think it's fair to say, maybe I'm answering the question for you, but you, you see a, 
a real impact that Bob Dylan had on their songwriting. Do you, do you credit him for this, these advancements? Um, yeah, you do start to see a, um, a, a Bob Dylan um, influence, especially in John's work. Right. Um, so I'm a loser is I'm the loser, one that right. gets a lot of, a lot of um, uh, I guess, attention for being kind of this Dylan-inspired track. Right. Um, in fact, on, on uh, Blonde on Blonde, Dylan wrote a song called The Fourth Time Around, mm-hmm. in which he was basically, uh, people think, chiding uh, John for copying him uh, four times. And I, I think it was, it was um, No Reply was the one track. Uh, Norwegian Wood was another. Um, and I forget what the other two were. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to look back at that. But basically feeling like that he had like copped Dylan's sound in a way. Right. But, um, but I think there's definitely a Dylan influence there, especially in John's work that's starting to to show and would continue again in tracks like, oh, that's the other one. Um, You've got to hide your love away. That was the third one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Norwegian wood on rubber soul. Right. So you're starting to see that happen there. Um, the, uh, one of the things that stands out on all of the Beatles albums is the track sequencing. I'm always intrigued by how all artists arrange the tracks on their albums. And one of the things that stands out for me with regard to the Beatles is how good their opening tracks always were. And on the four albums we've talked about tonight, Please Please Me, With the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale, the opening tracks were I Saw Her Standing There, It Won't Be Long, A Hard Day's Night, and No Reply. And for me, No Reply is one of my top, actually one of my top Beatles songs, period. I've always loved that song. The first time I heard a version of that song was actually not the Beatles for Sale version. I had gone in Anthology 1 before I bought Beatles for Sale. Mm-hmm. This was around the time I was getting into the group, thanks to you, my friend. And uh, I love the chord changes in No Reply. It had this mm-hmm. dramatic sort of chord change that went in directions I didn't expect. And I just love the melody in that song. I love the lyrics that condensed movie type feel is definitely evident in that song and you go from that into i'm a loser which is track two and you see this is not quote-unquote normal pop music we're seeing a real sophistication in the lyrics in these tracks that you don't see elsewhere uh i think it's fair to say for me personally i was more into beatles for sale as an album maybe a couple of years ago i still really enjoy it i return to it a lot particularly for no reply i'm a loser and some of the other originals i really like what you're doing i don't want to spoil the party every little thing those tracks really grab me the covers rock and roll music is great i do enjoy that uh honey don't i like words of love uh, not as crazy about everybody's trying to be my baby but it's just not necessarily it's not a hard day's night level for me mm-hmm. uh, but i do really enjoy it uh, something else, Dan, I wanted to mention, because I think it's important to cover in terms of the singles, is that you saw a tremendous artistic development for the Beatles in the world of the singles that they released. And one that really stands out because of the use of the feedback is I Feel Fine, uh, where you have at the opening of the song that, I mean, you, you could explain it perhaps better than me. Can you can you just describe, I want to make sure that the correct musical terms are used, the sound that's created at the beginning of that track and how it went on to influence people like Jimi Hendrix? Uh, so yeah, I think I think um, I feel fine is the first um, released song that artistically uses feedback mm-hmm. on the recording, and um, basically uh, what John was playing at the time was a, a 
from a lot of the tracks on on those early albums. Um, you know, John famously is seen when he's playing on the Red on the uh, Ed Sullivan Show and um, other Beatles live performances using a Rickenbacker 325 um, electric guitar. But what he was really using a lot in the studio was a Gibson um, acoustic electric mm-hmm. um, guitar. And uh, you see that in uh, the beginning of Help. That's the guitar that he's using, that, uh, that acoustic. Uh, looks like an acoustic guitar, but it was an acoustic electric with a, um, a pickup in it. Right. Um, he had been playing that, and um, he, put the, he had put the guitar down, um, leaned it against his amplifier, and when he took his hand away, his, his thumb hit an open A string. Mm-hmm. So it played an A note, and as the note, the string, the note was reverberating, uh, it started to feed back on the, um, on the amplifier mm-hmm. and created that, that noise, that feedback noise, that, that loud kind of swelling hum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, the Beatles being the Beatles were like, oh, let's put that on <laughs> the beginning of the song. Right. And that's how it ended up on the beginning of I Feel Fine. Um, first time that anyone had ever used feedback in a recording and, and like you said groups like Jimi hendrix and the who and um uh would go on to to basically make a, an early career of utilizing feedback mm-hmm. in their recordings but i think that was the first recorded evidence of it and you're right if you look at the singles at the time um i mean eight days a week ended up on beatles for sale because right. uh john came up with i feel fine and um but you had I Feel Fine, you had um, she, uh, She's a Woman um, also at that time. Yes. Uh, yes, It Is was also a single track um, that yeah. came out at that time. So a lot of the single stuff was, sh- again, showing this maturity of songwriting and this great advancement. But, uh, good, I'm sorry. Yeah, that that you have that we forget about when we're talking about the album sometimes. And Dan, it's unbelievable. Uh, you mentioned uh, correctly that Eight Days a Week was obviously a groundbreaking single and also was on Beatles for Sale. And yet, just like with the Beatles, where we didn't talk about All My Loving, it didn't even occur to us in our initial discussion. A great song like Eight Days a Week, we don't even we didn't even mention that mm-hmm. in the five to ten minutes we just spent talking about Beatles for Sale, which shows you that just how strong an album it was. We were talking about Honey Don't before we were t- we mentioned Eight yeah. Days a Week. Yep. And Eight Days a Week is one of the great early Beatles tracks, uh, mm-hmm. which I think I think the fact that this is occurring in our discussion this evening is evidence of just how great the Beatles were. As we wrap up this initial Beatles segment, because we're going a little long tonight and my computers, I, I don't want to run out of power before the Stuff We Love segment, because the audience is hanging on to and waiting for that segment. <laughs> but um, I guess in summation, when we look at this early Beatles period, and let's define this as, let's say, 19... 19- 62 through 64 when the album please please me was recorded through to the end of 64 when beatles for sale was recorded and released uh you have what i would call i alluded to it earlier that early 1960s beatles sound which is kind of an update on 50s rock and roll morphed into the british invasion type sound that the beatles were capable of producing uh, you'd see the emergence a little bit of that folk rock sound that you discussed a few minutes ago uh, a mixture of a tribute to both rock and roll and the great American songbook standards. That's really how I would describe the early Beatles. And I think when you listen to an album like, let's say, A Hard Day's Night, as great as it is, you can't even, if you were around at that time listening to that album, you could not foresee the musical changes that would occur just two years later. You're two years pr- pr- prior to a track like Tomorrow Never Knows being recorded. 
you could see how the group was progressing as songwriters, but still they had such a long way to go. I doubt anyone was capable of foreseeing where the group would, would head. Uh, Dan, how would you summarize in your own perspective the 62 through 64 Beatles period? Well, I think what we see is, um, you know, them starting off as, as, as hungry young musicians trying to, to make it in the, in the world of music, breaking onto the scene, taking the world by storm, mm-hmm. but um, continuously growing and, and maturing as performers and as artists. And one of the things that is, I think, remarkable about what, what we see happening is the Beatles begin to influence this whole generation of other musicians who start to go out and write their own material and, and create their own music and, and progress as artists as well, mm-hmm. and then start to influence the Beatles. Right. So we start to see this circle of influence happen where um, these artists begin to kind of look at what each other's doing and, oh, look, that's kind of cool. And then it influences what they do coming, you know, coming up next. And it's this cool kind of um, synergy that happens in the world of, of, of rock music. That's and like uh, when you tell me that you were, when you got me into the Beatles, if I started listening to another artist and then got you into that artist, that's the. Exactly. Uh, yeah, the, that, that's, that's wow. pretty much right. Yeah. Um, no, that, Dan, I agree with you. I, I think that's very well said. Um, is this your favorite Beatles period? Your least favorite? I mean, least favorite Beatles period is kind of like a joke. There is no least favorite period in a way we love no, it all. But, no. but do you? Are you more of an early Beatles guy or a later Beatles guy? What do you turn to right away first? I mean, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm more of a um, uh, a later Beatles guy. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's like my favorite period is kind of Rubber Soul on. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting because one of the things that we're gonna we see here is a transition. I love you know all the Beatles, but I think I've always been um, you know I feel like when you look at Beatles fans, often uh, you tend to have people that love the Beatles and 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 John is their main Beatle, right? Um, Paul or Paul is their main Beatle. You have some people that you know George is their is their main guy, but a lot of it is like you have a John Beatle fan and a Paul Beatle fan. Right. Uh, I was always a you know. Love Paul, but I was always a big John fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it's interesting because I feel like the early Beatles period was the Beatles were John's band. You know, um, John was the the clear leader of the band from '63 to about mid '65. Right, and then from '65 on, we start. To, I mean, if you look at that early period, he's writing a bulk of the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, he most of the lead vocals are his. Right. Um, but then mid 65, the Beatles become Paul's band. Paul, right. as John finds other interests, um, drugs, and then later Yoko, and he starts to kind of pull back from the band. I'm almost disinterested right. in a way in, in the Beatles. Paul comes in and, and, and picks up the slack. And from mid 65 on, it becomes Paul's band. And, and you look at the sheer output of what Paul does in that period of time, some incredible stuff. But uh, but for but for me, sixty five to the end is um, is my favorite my favorite period of the Beatles. I think because of the the just the advancements in songwriting and what they were playing and what they right. were doing. I think it's fair to say that I agree with you, even though I love it all. That rubber soul period on to me is just a different level. Not to take away anything from these early albums, but and a hard day's night is my favorite, as I've mentioned several times. But there's something about rubber soul through to the end that is such a consistent series of giant leaps of songwriting 
it's hard not to just be in awe of it even now. Mm-hmm. Years after that music came out, no matter how many times we hear the songs. Uh, so, Dan, this, this uh, by the way, I'm thrilled to be doing this series with you. It's nights like tonight that make me realize just how great the Beatles were. Uh, and I, as we're talking, I was thinking to myself, you know what? I want to listen to these first four albums again. Uh, because, And I would encourage our audience to do the same. Use this opportunity to revisit those first four albums. And if you don't own them, you could stream them now. That's the 21st century we live in. Yep. So uh, we're now going to turn to our Stuff We Love segment. This is where each of the hosts talks about something they are enjoying right now. It could be anything, a movie, a book, a song, whatever it is. So, Dan, let's start with you. What is your Stuff We Love for this episode? Uh, so my Stuff We Love for this episode is um, after our last episode talking about the uh, 50th anniversary uh, reissue of the White Album, I uh, decided to... Um, jump into another album that celebrated a 50-year anniversary in 2008, and uh, that's the band's music from Big Pink, um, the debut album of the band, which, again, uh, similar to Please Please Me, if you were to rate um, debut albums, best debut albums ever by, by a group, that would probably rank up there. And um, it's just an, an incredible album. Um, again, so such a, um, an album that really inspired so many other artists, uh, you know, came out in July of 68 um, at the tail end of the psychedelic uh, era, right when groups were starting to kind of get back to their roots. Uh, the Beatles moving away from the psychedelic era with the White Album, the Stones with a Beggar's Banquet. Mm-hmm. And um, here came this Bob Dylan's backing band, you know, up in Woodstock, New York, uh, coming out with this album of, of rootsy Americana, you know, music. Um, interesting for you know a band that was like four Canadians and, and one American uh, to kind of get at the heart of what American music was, but drawing from blues and jazz and, and country and, uh, and rockabilly and, and creating uh, this incredible album that that went on to influence um, so many other artists, including the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think uh, they talk about uh, George spent some time hanging out with the band in Woodstock in, mm-hmm. in uh, summer of 68, um, kind of came back with uh, raving about the group. And, and, and part of that was the influence for the Beatles to do the, the Get Back project, which became the Let It Be album, kind of stripping down and getting back to their basis, getting back to their roots. And, um, and the album had an incredible uh, effect on George when he started his solo career. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the things that you hear on um, uh, music from Big Pink, the... Um, kind of moderate to slower tempos of the music, um, the uh, kind of off-kilter chord progressions, um, the uh, moving away from this like flashy guitar style to this more um, in, this more uh, feel kind of style of playing mm-hmm. um, that I think George really kind of adapted in his solo career. Um, you can see the inspiration in, in, in uh, from Big Pink to um, All Things Must Pass and mm-hmm. um, Living in the Material World and stuff like that. So it's really an incredible album and uh, has probably one of the, the greatest songs uh, in rock and roll and the weight on, yeah. on that album. So um, that's what my, my stuff we love for today. Uh, so if people haven't listened to it, aren't familiar with the band, uh, check out Big Pink. Uh, check out the following album, which is the self-titled, um, and, and check out the band. It's great. 
great group. Dan, what uh, musical format did you get for the the uh, album? Did you buy it on CD, vinyl? What what did you get? Um, I have it on vinyl. Um, I have it on CD, and I, I have it on um, iTunes. So okay, mm-hmm. yeah. you got all the bases covered. I got all the bases covered. Uh, Dan, that's a great recommendation. Uh, if you like the Beatles, I think you'll be a fan of the band. Their work was tremendous. I was first introduced to them by my friend Greg, who I lived with in college. And uh, Dan, we went to high school with him as well. Mm-hmm. He was into the band. And I remember they re-released the movie The Last Waltz, which featured the band's final performance in a film directed by Martin Scorsese. It was re-released in theaters. And I remember going to see this movie at a local movie theater and just being blown away by it. I was not familiar with a ton of the songs. But I just couldn't take my eyes off the individual members of the group. Each of them was so unique, especially Robbie Robertson, just had this great stage presence about him. Uh, And uh, the first track that Greg really got me into was The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, which is such an amazing performance by that group. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, the album that you identify as one of the great albums of all time. I would encourage all of us to listen to it. I know I'm going to do that based on your uh, Stuff We Love recommendation tonight. So thank you, Dan, for that. No problem. Uh, This week for My Stuff We Love, I wanted to talk about a unique gift I got for the holidays. My friend gave me a gift that I opened up, and as I was opening it up, I I truly actually had no idea what I was opening up. Most of the times when you take the wrapping paper off a gift, you're able to – sometimes you can even tell what it is before you even take the wrapping paper off a gift. But in this case, I opened it up, and it was a big box, and within the box were smaller individual boxes. And what this gift was was uh, released by Disney. It was basically 12 days worth of Disney socks, and each sock was individually wrapped in a box. And this person that got it for me knows I'm a Disney fan and knows that I'm into crazy socks. I wear sort of fun, far-out crazy socks on casual days, on work days. That's something that I just enjoy doing. And uh, I today was the last day that I used one of the socks for the first time. And uh, you open it up each day, and there was a sock based on a character, a movie, a famous Disney story all of which are appropriate for adults to wear. This actually was the adult male version of the box. And I loved it. It was like getting a separate gift every single day. And the suit and the socks were appropriate for all sorts of occasions. So there was a Toy Story sock in there, a Lion King, Oswald the Lucky Robert, and so forth. So really cool Disney stuff in there, really cool clothing stuff. So that was the Disney Sock-A-Day gift. I believe it's available on the Disney Store online. So check it out if you're into Disney and you're into fun socks. So that's my Stuff We Love recommendation. That's maybe a little bit different than the uh, Bud Light Lime recommendation. <laughs> for last week. And I don't, I don't mean to laugh at that. It was a great recommendation. I, I, I wouldn't change a thing about it, but it just is not necessarily what you might expect if you listen to the show a lot. Uh, anyhow, uh, Dan, thank you again for joining us tonight on this uh, Beatles episode. Uh, soon we're going to record the next episode in our series, which we'll discuss it, but I'm sure we'll probably cover, let's say, 65 through 67, perhaps. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. play around with that. But yeah. uh, I, I think this is great. And I know many of our listeners uh, are big fans of the Beatles. I've talked to them on Twitter about this stuff. So I think they're really going to enjoy this series we're having here. Uh, so thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we encourage all of you to follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at Stuff We Love Pod. Instagram, Stuff We Love Podcast. We have a Facebook page, which we encourage you to go and like. Our website is StuffWeLovePodcast.com. We have a products page on there where you can see links to some of the stuff that we've talked about. For example, now if you go there, you'll see a link to the deluxe version of the White Album, which is available on Amazon.com. If you click one of those links and make a purchase on Amazon, it benefits the podcast. So we encourage all of you to do that. Our website also has a blog, which we're going to be updating more in 2019. Uh, Fans can write to us, StuffWeLovePodcast.gmail.com. 
And please uh, leave those five-star reviews on iTunes. Not only is it nice to hear such good things said about the podcast, but it makes it easier for people exploring podcasts to discover our show. Uh, So thank you all for tuning in. Once again, best wishes for a happy and healthy new year. I am Scott. And I'm Dan. And this has been the Stuff We Love podcast.